Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in the series, A Life That Pleases God. As we work our way through Hebrews 11, we see examples of those who demonstrated what faith is. First, let's define faith. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. There is a song we sing with our kids, This Little Light of Mine. It is a great picture of what a person of faith does. They let their light shine. If you are a person of faith, how are you letting your light shine? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Faith is Public. and open your Bibles if you want to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be looking at verse 28. You'll also, I'll give you a heads up, we're going to spend a lot of time in Exodus chapter 12 as well. So if you want to take that little, you always wonder what that little ribbon in your Bible is for. It's so when pastors use two passages, you can flip back and forth pretty easily, all right? You can find your way in the Bible quickly. Hebrews 11, Exodus chapter 12. We're looking again at the life of Moses. You're saying, man, I didn't we do this last week? Is this a rerun? Uh, we're looking several times at the book of Moses because God gives us several examples from Moses' life in Hebrews 11. Remember, Hebrews 11 defines what faith is, and then the rest of this book, it gives us these little snapshots, these little portraits of faith from which we should learn what faith actually looks like when it's lived out. It's not enough to understand what faith is. God expects us to put our faith to action, and to do that, he gives us human examples to follow. And you say, why does Moses get so many, because there's so many. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. It shouldn't surprise us, because what book are we studying right now? Hebrews. Who is the greatest, if you will, the most well-known Hebrew of all time? Moses. Moses, remember, was the Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth is to baseball, but Moses is to Judaism and the Hebrews. And so God gives them example, this great patriarch of their faith, upon which uh, even the Jews in Jesus' day said that they were of Moses. And so the writer of Hebrews is showing these Jews that even the great Moses lived by faith and not by works. He lived the life of faith. Verse 28, we're looking at the example of Moses today, and it says, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Up to this point, you know, Moses, you remember he lived the princely life in Egypt for 40 years. He lived the comfortable life in Midian for 40 years. And as an 80-year-old man, God calls him out of a burning bush to go and to let my people go. God allowed Moses to become frail and weak. By this time, he's slow of speech. He's not a strong man. And yet it's at that point in his life that God wants to use him mightily so that God gets the glory and not Moses. And he goes to Moses, or goes to Pharaoh, and he makes the most bold proclamation ever, let my people go. They're not yours, they're mine, they're God's people. And he tells this God king, he needs to let them go. And when he doesn't, he shows through God's power many mighty judgments over the gods of Egypt. The last of those, those judgments, these plagues, was a plague against their great and mighty Ra, the very top of their pantheon, the top of this henotheistic system, their, their leader, Ra. And so you have this darkness sweep over the land such that nobody left their house for three days. And even still, Pharaoh would not relent. Pharaoh continued to harden his heart to God, to the place where God hardened his heart and consigned him to, uh, to judgment that was going to come. 
And that's where we find ourselves today. The last and the final, if not the most heinous of all of the plagues, was the plague that God simply describes as the destroyer in verse 28. What or who is this destroyer? Is it God? Is it an angel? Uh, I'd say yes. <laughs> it is God through the agency of these angels. And the reason I believe that it was a destroying angel is Psalm 78 and verse 49, when describing what happened during these plagues, we read, uh, it says, talking about God, God, he let loose on them his burning anger, a company of destroying angels who are, who are sent out to do his will, whether it's to do his will in judgment or it's to do his will in blessing you, know, you and I in answering our prayer request, as we saw in the book of Daniel. Well, Exodus 12, 29 describes what this event was. What was this grand destroyer event that brought even Pharaoh to his knees to allow the people to go? It says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. In other words, every single home was touched by death. God took the firstborn, the firstborn of everybody, from Pharaoh down to somebody in prison, somebody maybe was homeless. God took all the firstborn. The firstborn, what that meant was then that the head of every family is gone. The patriarch of every home in Egypt died that night. The head, the head of many heads of state died that night. Israel was, or uh, Egypt rather, was touched by death and they were re removed from this sense of security that we once had. Our whole future has been lost in one night in a single judgment by God. Moreover, the firstborn of the households were associated with the Egyptian god Bess. We have a picture of him in case you want to see him. Not too impressive. He's a, he's a dwarf god. And it was said that Bess was the protector of children. Now, that's pretty bad if you've got a God who specifically protects your children, and yet all of the firstborn children die, including the firstborn men, firstborn grandpas, any firstborn male, they died. And so Bess completely failed them in that, in that sense. Moreover, Bess not only protected the firstborn, but the firstborn then, under his Bess's blessing, became the protector of his own household. Pretty bad then when you, as the protector of the household, die, and then you couldn't even protect your own child, nor could the dwarf god Bess protect your child. And God, in a single night, took away their trust in their false god. Now, you might be asking yourself, why the firstborn of the cattle? Why, why would that be a judgment? Why did God include that? Well, we have to understand a little bit about Egyptian culture and why that would be significant. Remember that these, these plagues were power encounters, the power of God versus the power of the Egyptian gods to show that you are trusting in a false system. And so if you took the firstborn of the cattle, it means that you killed, if you will, one of their gods. The firstborn of the cattle uh, was the god Apis, the Apis bull. Maybe you've seen a picture of this before. What does this look very similar to? It looks very similar to what we understand to be the golden calf that the Israelites would make later in the wilderness. They didn't learn their lesson. God proved himself mighty over Apis. He killed, if you will, their, their living representation on earth of, of, the, of God 
which is this apis bull. And so God proved himself mighty over them. The apis bull, this physical, it was supposed to be a physical representation of the god Ptah of Memphis, not where you can get good barbecue. But Memphis, a very significant city in Egypt. And so this was a demonstration of God's power. If you will, he killed their God. And so all hope is gone. Egypt's entire future is gone. This country is thrown into chaos. The heads of home, the heads of state, they're gone. And Pharaoh's legacy is destroyed. Yet before this awful destruction, I think it's interesting that God warns Israel of the judgment to come. Our God does that, by the way. Before God destroys a place, he always gives people ample warning. Before God destroyed the earth through a great flood, did he warn the people? He warned them through Noah. He gave them a giant object lesson. Here, here's a giant ark for 100 years. You know, Come ask me about what this is all about. And so God gave them an ark. He gave them a warning. Before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, did he warn Lot and his family? He did. Here, uh, in our story today, he's going to warn Moses and the people of Israel, and if you will, even all of Egypt, there is a judgment that's coming, and you don't want to be in on this one. And there's a way to get out of it, just as God even warns us today. Is there still a judgment of God coming? Okay, are people actually going to be in a physical, literal, eternal, and burning hell? There are. There will be. In fact, the Bible says, wide is the gate that leads there. Most people you look at on the street are going to hell. God says so. And yet, has God given us warning? He has, but we have to heed that warning much as the Jews are going to heed, have to heed that warning. Now this plague, this 10th plague, even for the Jews, is gonna be different from any other plague that God has given them thus far. Previously, if you were a Jew and you wanted to be saved from the plague, all you had to do was wake up. God saved you because you were a Jew. These, these Egyptians were struggling with these things over here and the, the Jews... They were doing okay just by being a Jew. They were the chosen people of God. But this plague is different. God is gonna require, whether you're Egyptian or whether you're a Jew, each one of you are individually going to have to put your faith in me and offer a sacrifice as a shadow, a picture of a future sacrifice. Every individual is going to have to put their faith in me and make it public. Or else you're gonna be judged just like all the rest of the Egyptians. So number one, we're gonna see here that salvation is personal. It's personal. Hebrews eleven twenty eight describes that Moses did something by faith. In other words, it means that he trusted God. He believed something was going to happen that's never happened before. He's believing something that's unseen, and he's changing how he lives today because of something that he knows is going to happen, even though you can't see it. That's faith. It says, by faith, he kept the Passover. To keep an event means that you're doing what's expected of you because you believe in your heart it's actually going to happen. Before it even happens, it's, it's real to you. And so you do what's expected to show your belief in that event. If you remember reading Dickens' A Christmas Carol, remember Scrooge, he's, he's scolding his nephew and he says, uh, you keep Christmas your way and I'll keep Christmas mine, you know, in my way. And what he meant by what that by that was, you do the things that are expected of you during the Christmas celebration to show your belief and faith in the event, and I will keep it my way, which in his case was to do nothing. And so for Moses to keep the Passover means that there was an expectation by God to do certain things to show that he had belief in this event that was about to take place. By faith, Moses kept the Passover. So let's look at Exodus 12 now, if you have your ribbon, this is the time to use that. 
Move over to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at the first two verses and look at this event in greater detail. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, Why, uh, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And so, pause there. What is God doing here? He's letting Moses and Israel know that this is not just some one-off event. This is something that is going to be so significant to you religiously as a people, uh, so significant in revelation about your God that you're going to celebrate it every year. This is going to become an annual part of your calendar. And the reason is, is because this Passover is going to, is going to symbolize something far more significant in your life. Verse 3 shows us that this salvation is personal. He says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household. It's showing us, it says every man needs to participate. It's not enough just to be a Jew. It's not enough that you live in the right neighborhood, that you have the right mom and dad, you have the right nationality, you have the right skin color. None of that matters. What matters is that every man put their faith in God, that you believe that there's a judgment coming and that there's appropriate sacrifice that needs to be made. Every man. How about us today? Is it enough that um, your papa was a preacher? Is it enough that your mom and dad built this original church with your own two hands and with your own money? Is that enough? It's not. Is it enough that you grew up as a kid here or grew up in some church somewhere your whole life? You don't even know what it's like not to be part of a, a church family, a church body. That's not enough, is it? We've got to individually, just like the Jews here, we've got to individually put our faith in Jesus Christ, just as they put their faith in God individually. Now, there's three things that we're going to see about this sacrifice here. A, it's that God's sacrifice is a lamb of God's own choosing, Verse five, it says, your lamb. Let's see how personal that is, your lamb. Your lamb will be without blemish, a male and a year old. Notice that this sacrifice God is asking of them is very specific. This isn't just any kind of sacrifice will do. It had to be a lamb. It had to be a year old. It had to be without blemish, right? And you're gonna sacrifice exactly what God asks you to sacrifice. In other words, you don't get to pick how you approach God. Cain, you don't get to offer up God a sacrifice of vegetables. When God asks for a blood sacrifice, you give God a blood sacrifice. When you're God, you get to choose how you're satisfied for sin. You get to choose what will forgive. Humans, we don't get that option, do we? We don't get to choose how we come to God, how we approach God. We don't approach God on our own terms, do we? We don't get to pick uh, how we approach God. If there was a Jew who say, uh, they hear at the sacrifice, they know there's a judgment coming and they decide, you know what? I'm gonna offer God this here chicken. What's gonna happen to that Jew? He's gonna die. God knows the difference between the sacrifice of a chicken and the lamb. And so you don't get to pick how to approach God just as Peter said in his sermon to the Jews who were trusting in their works rather than in faith. He said in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. It's a pretty narrow view, isn't it? But it's God's view. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we much must be saved. There is no plan B. And yet today in popular culture, it's considered very enlightened to say things like this. Oh, well, you have your truth, and that's good for you. You see, I have my truth. Your truth isn't wrong. You can believe anything you want. It's your truth, 
It's okay, but I have my truth. So there's your truth, there's my truth, there's his truth. There's a lot of different truths out there. Is that true? The nature of truth itself, hate to get too philosophical here, but the nature of truth is this. Truth is either singular and objective or it's not truth at all. There is, I always love people talk about objective truth. There is no truth other than objective truth. For something to be true means that there is a singular answer that is true, and it's either true for all people or it's not true for any people. You go ahead and just try to give any old answer you want in math class and see what your teacher says. Well, this is true for me. That answer might be true for you, but this is the truth, this is truth for me. That doesn't work in math class. There's truth. There's a singular answer that the teacher will accept. In that same way, there's only one truth that God will accept when we come and we stand in his presence, and that is, do you have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life? If you don't have that truth, you have your opinion, but you don't have something that's true. What is truth? Jesus prayed in John 17, 17. He's praying to the Father, and he says, sanctify them. It's just a word that means to set apart. Make them more and more like God. I want you to make them like you, Lord. Sanctify them in truth. And then he defines what truth is. He says, your word is truth. There is no truth outside of what God says is true. God, by the virtue of being God, gets to declare what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong. And anything outside of what, if God says something is false, no matter how many men say it's true, it's still false. Now, when you're God and you're sovereign and you're supreme, you're omnipotent, omniscient, and you create all things, you get to set the rules. You get to define what truth is because you're God. When man thinks that man can determine what truth is, it's because man thinks he's God. That first sin in the garden, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil, was a desire, to, like Satan said, to be like God. It was a desire to be able to define good and evil for myself, to make my own religion. And that sounds very enlightened until we realize it was literally the original sin of man to rebel against God because I want to be God and I want to decide what's right and wrong. I want to decide my own truth. Friends, if that's where you are today and you feel like you have the freedom to choose your own truth, friends, you're not on a search for truth. You're on a search for vindication. You're on a search for power to become like God, to define good and evil for yourself. Truth, by the nature of what truth is, is objective and it's fixed. Truth, like books, when I was growing up, used to be a fixed thing. You know, when you read Moby Dick, there's only one ending to it. When you read the Chronicles of Narnia, there's only one ending to it. You read the book and you accept whatever ending the author gave you. But uh, in, the mid, in the late 70s, there came a, a book series called Choose Your Own Adventure. Anybody ever read a Choose Your Own Adventure book? I have. I loved those books as a kid. Because right there on the book, it says, you're the, the, the star of this story. And not only that, but uh, you could actually decide how the book ends. You remember that? You would read a story. It would, it would start you out with a little bit of a narrative. And at the bottom of each one of these pages, there'd be two, sometimes three choices. And it'd say, would you like to go uh, <laughs> sit in the chair where it looks very safe? Or do you want to venture into the dark, scary forest? And you're like, I want to be safe. And it's like, you immediately die. That's not really what I wanted to do. So you've cheated like I did. And you flipped over to the good ending. You know, so that's a choose your own adventure book. You get to decide how this narrative ends. You decide for yourself. And that's very appealing to a postmodern culture. I get to decide. I decide where I go. I decide my heaven. I get to decide what's good and evil. I get to decide my gender. I get to decide what species I am. Those are all attempts to be God. 
And we don't get to do that. Truth is objective. And so God does not give the Jews the option to approach him any way they want, to choose their own truth, to choose their own sacrifice. He requires that they, re that they offer him what he asks for, and that's a sacrificial lamb. See, be here that God's sacrifice must be flawless. Exodus 12, 5 says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. And so we don't get to offer God the worst of the lambs that we have. Malachi 1.8 talks about what a blemished lamb is. It's a lamb that is uh, sickly or lame. We don't get to go out to our barnyard and say, oh man, here's a lamb with a broken leg. Here's some three-legged lamb. Uh, let's give that one to the Lord. I got some lamb here. He's already dying. He's sick. Uh, let me just offer that to the Lord. No, we had to offer God the best of what we had. We had to offer a lamb that was complete. That's what perfect means, it means complete. There's nothing lacking, there's nothing missing. He's without blemish, without spot. He doesn't have disease, he's not broken, he's not destroyed. Why? Because it is going to picture some greater truth coming down the road. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, what does it say about Christ? Christ is our Passover lamb. And so as a shadow, as a picture of the Christ who is to come, this lamb here had to be without blemish and without spot. Couldn't have anything wrong with it. 1 Peter 1.19 says that we were saved with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It has to be perfect and complete. By the way, this is why we make such a big deal about the, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Why is it important that Jesus not just be a man who is a good person and died on the cross for our sins? Because as a man, he isn't perfect. Just as a man by himself, just a normal everyday Joe like you and I, if we died on the cross, it would be for our own sins and not for the sins of the world. For Jesus to be able to die for the sins of the whole world, he has to also be fully God. Not partly God, not, he, not uh, like Hercules, 50-50, a little 50% God, 50% man. Or even 75% God. He has to be 100% and fully God or we're believing in a different Jesus than the Bible describes. And that's very important. A lot of people I realize say, oh, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He wasn't God. These people, friends, can I just say, we're gonna to talk tonight a little bit more about it, but they have not read their Bible thoroughly. Jesus, many times, just in the book of John, claimed to be God, John chapter five. Jesus talks about the Father is working and I'm working. In other words, our work is the same, and the Jews understood that to mean that he's God, how do we know? Because they picked up stones to stone him. You didn't pick up stones to stone somebody just because you disagree with them. You picked up stones because you believe they're speaking blasphemously. John chapter eight, verse 58, Jesus says, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now Jesus could have said, before Abraham was, I was, and he would be right, it would still be a claim to eternality. Who is eternal? There's only one eternal being, and that's God. But Jesus didn't even say that. He said, before Abraham was, I am. English teacher would have counted off for grammar. But it's good doctrine. What is, who is the I am? Read back to the life of Moses. Who spoke out of the burning bush? He says, go to Israel and tell them, I am has sent you. I am refers to the self-existence of God. He is always in a present state of being. I am. He doesn't need anybody or anything to survive. Jesus is claiming there, not only was he eternal and coexistent with the Father, he's also the I am. He is the very God, if you will, that spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. 
John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, the Father and I are one. Once again, it's understanding that in their nature, we'll talk more about this tonight, but in their nature, they are the same being. The Jews understood this as a claim to deity, and they tried to stone him. So no, Jesus himself claims to be God, and he proved it through his works. Why is it so important then that we believe that Jesus is God and not man? Because if Jesus is not God, friends, we're believing in a false God, and we are going to hell because Jesus was a man who died for himself. We are literally damned to hell if we do not understand that Jesus is God. To be saved, we have to trust in the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of our own creation. It's not just enough to use his name. I'll give you an example. If I were to speak to you about a woman I know named Amber, who is my wife. Okay, as soon as I say Amber, who is my wife, you've got certain ideas conjured up in your head as to who I'm talking about, don't you? You're picturing some little five-foot-two blonde girl who smiles a lot and has lots of energy and does a lot of things, okay? And who has currently abandoned me for some little kid over in North Carolina. <laughs> That's who you're thinking of, right? You know who I'm talking about, most of you. Now, if I said, oh, you know Amber, my wife, she's about six-foot-two and Asian. What's going through your head? You're thinking, wait, hang on, back up. <laughs> you said Amber, your wife, right? Yeah. And you said six foot two and Asian, right? No, that's, we're talking about the wrong person. Oh, but I'm talking about Amber, right? Yeah, different Amber, because we're not talking about the same Amber. So it's not just enough to use any old name. Uh, the Muslims will use the name Jesus, but who is Jesus to a Muslim? He's just a prophet, a great prophet, mind you, maybe the greatest, somewhat one of the greatest of the prophets, but he's just a prophet. Is it enough to believe in the Jesus of the Muslims to, to be born again? It's not. Why not? Why are the Muslims not going to heaven? I know that's not a popular thing to say, but why are Muslims not going to heaven? Because they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They're believing in a Jesus of their own creation, if you will, an idol of Jesus. They're believing in a Jesus that, that makes sense to them and that is uh, appealing to their own flesh. What about, the Muslim, what about the Mormons? You ever have a Mormon knock on your door? I was in Bible college, had some Mormons stop by my door. Now, this, this, is some, uh, this is some sand they got here knocking on a Bible college dormitory door. And I go to the door, and there's Mormons there, you know? They says, like, elder so-and-such, and they're like 14, you know? <laughs> elder. And they're telling me about Jesus. Oh, yeah, Jesus. We believe, they said, in the exact same Jesus. I said, oh, really? Tell me about your Jesus. Well, you believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So do we. Believe you have to believe in the name of Jesus for eternal life? So do we. Problem is, if you dig into Mormon theology, who do they believe Jesus is? He's some regular Joe like you and me who earned Godhood. In fact, they have a phrase, as Jesus once was, so we are now. As Jesus is now, so we too may become. They literally teach that you can become your own God in Mormonism. Is that the God of the Bible? Is that the, is that the Jesus that saves? It's not the Jesus that saves. Talk to a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, yes, we believe in Jesus. They may even say at times, Isaiah 9, 6, oh, yes, he is mighty God. They'll acknowledge that when pushed on it. But what is, what is Jesus to a Jehovah's Witness? Did you know that they believe he is Michael the archangel? Is that your Jesus? Will believing in Jesus as Michael the archangel, is that going to get you to heaven? Is that going to forgive you of your sins? You say, no. It's not enough just to use the name Jesus like some incantation. When we talk about the name of Jesus, we talk about one's reputation. 
So when we talk about putting our faith in the name of Jesus or calling upon the name of the Lord, we're calling upon a specific individual as they describe themselves. And the Jesus of the Bible is God. If you're calling on a Jesus who is not God, friends, you've not called on the Jesus of the Bible. You've called on somebody else. And that's a dangerous place to be because Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Who is saved? The person who's willing to confess, agree with God, agree with what God has said, that Jesus the man is also what? Lord. That Jesus the man is also God. That is a requirement for salvation. You've got to believe that Jesus the man is also Jesus the God because if it's not Jesus the God or Jesus the partially God or the Michael the archangel or a semi-God, you're believing in a different God of the Bible. It's sort of like if you, somebody's breaking into your house and you call upon Domino's Pizza to save you. They're not gonna do that. You have to call the right people. You have to dial the right number. You're gonna dial 911 and you're gonna get the boys in blue to come out to your house and they were gonna save you. There's no other number you're going to dial that's going to save you like that. We're going to see here, see that God's sacrifice is available to all. Verse 5 continues, your lamb will be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you will take it from the sheep. And look at this, it says, or from the goats. Now, this is odd because any other time you read about the Passover in the Bible, every other time into the future, it's going to require to be a lamb. Why does God make this concession at this point only that they can take a lamb or a goat? Remember that in the plagues, the livestock had been killed off. And now this is over a period of months. And so the land was slowly replenishing its animals. And so there's many Jews being, just by virtue of being a slave or a lot of the livestock having been killed off, they're not gonna have access to a lamb. Are those people doomed to the judgment of God then? No, God makes this salvation available to all people. And he gives them this one-time concession. If you have a lamb or a goat, you can still be saved. And it's the same with us. Now, there's only one person who saves, that's Jesus. But the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 12 to 13, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's nobody that isn't saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And people ask me, you know, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It's, it's pretty simple, really. You're calling, you're calling out to God. Uh, there was a theologian named Albert Barnes. He was a theologian around the time of the revolution, just shortly after the revolution, uh, American Revolution. And he simply said that calling upon the name of the Lord means to invoke the name of Jesus in prayer. You're calling out to him. Now, is it a prayer that saves you? If I just chant these words, am I saved? No. But someone who truly puts their faith in Jesus in their heart, they will call upon the name of the Lord. Like James said, faith without works is dead. You don't get to believe Jesus privately that won't also call out to God in prayer. And so everyone, the Bible says, any one of us who wants to call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. But we have to call upon the Jesus of the Bible. We have to call upon the Jesus as God describes him. I want you to see number two here, that salvation is not only personal, but it's also public. He's saying that real and genuine private faith will manifest itself publicly. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Lord and rose from the dead, you will also publicly confess him as Lord. So what do we do with this lamb? You've just killed a lamb, 
Exodus chapter 12, verse 7 reveals, then they shall take some of the blood and they will put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. We don't use the term lintel that often anymore, and I'm not a great builder, but you're, the doorpost we understand. The lintel is that beam that sets on those doorposts and it supports the weight of the structure above it, okay? And so on the doorposts of these houses, they've got to apply the blood of the lamb that has just been sacrificed. In other words, this sacrifice isn't just a private thing in your heart, it's a public thing. Give you a little something extra too. Something interesting you need to know about Egyptian architecture. Egyptian architecture was built with, uh, with spiritual meaning and purpose behind it. For temporary structures where we just live here on earth, they were made out of temporary building materials, by and large. They were made out of mud brick. But when you had something that would house your body for eternity, it, in their mind, it would be made out of stone because stone would last forever. I think it's interesting. The only part of an Egyptian home that was made out of stone was the doorpost and the lintel. In other words, when everything else in that Jewish or that Egyptian household decayed and disappeared, one thing is still going to remain, and it's the blood that you put on the stone doorpost and lintel. I think it's just a beautiful picture of the, the eternal security of that believer. Once that blood has been applied, it's been to applied to something eternal, something that outlasts us. Well, he says we're to apply the, the blood of the doorpost and the lintel, and it says that Moses did this unafraid, Hebrews eleven twenty eight. By faith, he kept the Passover. He did what God asked him to do, and it says he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, some people get really offended by how bloody a religion Christianity truly is. We can't get away from, there is a lot of blood in this religion, isn't there? Maybe you don't like the idea of blood, but there's a reason that there's significance in the blood. And by the way, why blood? Because God chose blood. And there's a reason for that. Leviticus 17.11, in the clean section of your Bible that you always skip over in the reading through the Bible in a year, that place, there are things that are important. Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh, the life that's in my body, he says, is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The Bible declares here in Leviticus that life is in the blood. And if you study, if you're a medical major, you study science any length of time, you take 10th grade biology, you're gonna learn that life is in the blood, won't you? In the blood, we have red blood cells, and it brings oxygen to the rest of your body. Aren't you glad that your body is oxygenated right now so that you can be alert and awake and taking notes? Red blood cells, it's in the blood. Beyond that, we have white blood cells too. And if you ever look at it under a microscope, as I have, it's, it's amazing. You can see these white blood cells and they'll attack this germ and they'll attack the sidewall and they will literally rupture and explode these germs. It's really amazing. It's in the blood, that which protects you. What about that hamburger you just ate at Fat Patty's last night? Little nutrition though there may be, your body, God created it such that it can take a fat patty's burger and it can break it down. And it, once again, how is that, how is that burger getting from your stomach to your, your eyes and your hair? It's through the blood. It gets absorbed into the liquid part of the blood that we call plasma. And it's transmitted all throughout the, your entire body through your circulatory system. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You know what's amazing is the Bible declared this in Leviticus in the roughly 1400s BC. 
When did man discover that life is in the blood? It wasn't until, uh, I think, like 1620, when he had a scientist named William Harvey who discovered that life is in the blood. Thousands of years later, we finally arrive at what God told us was clearly true in Leviticus. Is this a divine book or what? That it, it's not a book of science in that it's not, its goal and purpose is not to teach us science. But whenever the Bible speaks of scientific things, it always does with 100% accuracy. Why? Because God is a God of science. Who created these scientific laws? It was God. Well, Leviticus 17 also says that blood is what atones for sin. The, the word atonement is just a word that means a covering. Something has been covered up every year on the day of the atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest, he would enter into the holy place and he would go to the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Indiana Jones? Go to the Ark of Covenant with a hyssop branch, a little branch, he'd dip it in the blood and he would sprinkle, he would cover the mercy seat and that made atonement. It was a, it was a symbolic covering of our sins. The word atonement itself is a word meaning to change the appearance of something, to take something that was, was awful and to make it beautiful. Take something that was ugly and make it beautiful. If you've ever been to big cities and you go to maybe some sketchy neighborhood, there is graffiti everywhere, isn't there? You've seen graffiti. We don't normally associate graffiti with being in a good part of town, typically. I mean, in your neighborhood, uh, Brad, is there graffiti all over your neighborhood? Probably not. So, see, Brad lives in a nice part of town, so there's no graffiti everywhere. But if there was a lot of graffiti somewhere, we don't associate that with being a good thing because graffiti began typically as gang signs and symbols. We're showing you that as a gang, we claim this part of town. This belongs to us. You don't want to live in that part of town. So what do we have today in these kind of beautifying movements within the city? You've got these people who will go and they'll take paint and what will they do with the graffiti? They will cover it up, won't they? And they'll cover it up and they'll paint over it and they'll make it something beautiful, if you will. They're taking this property that used to belong to the Crips and the Bloods and whatever gang you're a part of, and now they're reclaiming it for the people. They're covering it up. This area belongs to somebody else now. This is under new management. This is what the atonement does of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> His blood covers our sins we are born into this world, every one of us stained with the graffiti of Satan. You belong to me. As Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. You're not just a person making a choice not to believe in God. Outside of Jesus Christ, Jesus sees us as a father of the devil, belonging to him. The Bible tells us very clearly in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And when we're saved, the blood of Jesus is applied to us and it covers us fully, removing that stigma of belonging to Satan. And now we've been reclaimed for God. Colossians 1.13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us <clears throat> to the kingdom of God's beloved son. We who were once identified as belonging to Satan and belonging to this world system and the graffiti of Satan was upon our hearts. The Bible says through the blood of Christ, it's been covered up and we've been reclaimed. We used to be card-carrying members of the domain of darkness and we have been covered by the blood and now belong to the kingdom of God's beloved son. That is atonement. <clears throat> now maybe you're thinking, I don't so much like a bloody religion. I don't like this talk about the blood of Christ. Well, can I say with just all the most gentility that I have as a pastor, it doesn't matter what you like. What we like does not determine what is true. 
There's a lot of things in life that you may not like. I don't like that broccoli is healthy. Is broccoli healthy? <laughs> Doesn't mean it's not true. I, don't, I never liked algebra growing up. I didn't like mathematics. For whatever reason, it just didn't seem relevant to my life. And so I just, I hated math. I have worked hard for years to forget trigonometry and algebra and equations and variables, okay? I've done a pretty good job, by the way, forgetting all of that. I've put the past behind me. But what I'm saying is the, the math is still true. I may not like it. I may not enjoy it, but it's still true. You may be repulsed by the idea that God requires blood for the atonement of sins. Doesn't mean it's not true. The truth that God wants us to wrestle with is found in Hebrews 9.22. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you want a bloodless spirituality, if you want a bloodless Christianity, that's great and all, but you also have to give up the forgiveness of sins. Or we can humble ourselves, allow God to be God, and for God to determine what makes atonement for our sins. And he says, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the significance of putting on the door? As we've said, it means that your faith is public. In other words, God won't allow us just to have a private faith over here. Theoretically speaking, if you had a Jew, and let's say he, this time he doesn't have a chicken, he takes a lamb, and he sacrifices the lamb, and he consumes the lamb as God told him to. But he decided, you know, I really don't want to put the blood on the lintels of my door. I mean, that lasts forever. I don't really want to put the blood on the outside door of my house because then all the Egyptians, they walk by and they go, I thought so, yeah. How dare you throw that in my face? You have such an offensive message of blood. You Hebrews, whose God has made our life miserable these last several months. You have the audacity to put the blood on the outside of your door where everybody can see it. What if you had a Jew who, who privately offered the lamb and they killed it and they ate of it, but they refused to put the blood on the outside of their door? What happens to that person? They die. They die. You see, God doesn't believe that our private faith has a whole lot of weight or meaning to it unless we're willing to be public about it, unless we're willing to publicly identify with and acknowledge ourselves with and have our name mentioned in the same sentence as Jesus. In fact, Jesus says these words in Luke 9, 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. To be ashamed of your God means that you lack belief in them such that you don't want to be associated with them any longer. Jeremiah chapter 48 describes Moab as being ashamed of their God, Chemosh, because he failed them. 2 Samuel 5.21 also describes the Philistines. They were going into battle. They were defeated in battle. It says they were ashamed of their gods and left them on the battlefield. These soldiers back then will often take a little pouch and it has these little gods in them. It's not like they're hauling in some big heavy god into battle. Okay? But they would take these little idols with them. If you've ever seen 
oh, what is that? I think it's the movie Gladiator or something. It's, uh, he takes these little gods. Maximus has these like little gods these little, that he puts in this pouch. And you would carry these into battle, and they would protect you from harm. They protect you in battle. And so for the Philistines to be ashamed of their gods such that they leave it on the battlefield is a public proclamation. I, ref- I don't believe in you anymore. <clears throat> you don't save me. And furthermore, I refuse to associate myself with you any longer. You've put distance between you and your God. I will not follow you any longer. That's what it means to be ashamed of God. Not, to, not just that you're a little bit nervous to share the gospel. That's not what we're talking about. It's somebody who refuses to publicly identify with the God of the Bible. The Bible says when we are ashamed of God, that we, like the Philistines, we're distancing, we're putting, our, putting him away from us, and we don't want people to know who we are. He says, he who is ashamed of me, what will God do? The son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Says, of him, the man who is ashamed of God, it says, of him, the son of man will also be ashamed. For God to be ashamed of us doesn't just mean that God feels bad that we aren't associating ourselves with him. What he's saying is, I don't believe in you either. I'm ashamed of you. I will not associate myself with you either. It's describing a person who is lost and unsaved. You see, in God's eyes, a true and genuine private faith is not ashamed to be public about that faith either. That if we have a genuine private faith, we don't mind publicly being associated with the name Jesus Christ. And if we are ashamed to be associated with Jesus Christ, it's because there is something flawed in our private faith of God. To be ashamed of God just means we've, we've lost faith. It's, it's sort of like where I feel like I am with the 2023 Kansas City Royals. Anybody following baseball in these last days leading up to October? Royals haven't had a great season. It's been a really bad season. And the only saving grace for the Royals this last season has been the Oakland Athletics, who have been the very bottom of the American League and at the beginning started their season out so poorly, people thought they were going to be the worst team uh, in Major League history. That's how bad the A's were. They were so bad, people were showing up to the games, not to watch the game, but to protest the owner and say, would you please sell this team to somebody who cares? I looked online at one point in time, you could buy $1 seats in certain parts of the stadium in Oakland. I mean, those those are bad days. They were that bad in their pitch to try to move to Las Vegas. They just, it just felt like they had just given up and stopped trying. Now, I say that for context. The Kansas City Royals were actually trying. And just this last week, we're defeated by Oakland Athletics, and now Kansas City Royals are the worst team in the major leagues. How hard is it to wear your Royals jersey and ball cap out in public? Because you know as soon as you wear that, anybody who follows baseball is going to have something to say to you. <laughs> You're okay wearing that in public? <laughs> and then they'll start talking about how great the Reds are. You know? That's what's going to happen if you wear a Kansas City jersey. People are going to mock you, and they're going to scorn you, but true fans will continue to wear the jersey because they believe in a future event that somehow the Royals are gonna return to their 1985 form. It may not be in my lifetime, but there's faith. Well, that's the meaning of Luke 9:26. Things are bad for the Christian now. It's difficult to wear the jersey, but true believers will wear the jersey of God. They will not be ashamed of him. Why do you think it is that the very first command of all Christians is to be baptized. Jesus says, go into all the world. I mean, this is our great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples doing what? 
baptizing them. Why is baptism such an integral part of Christianity, so closely tied to faith? You can read in verses like Acts 2.38, where it talks about repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Does it mean that we're saved by baptism? No. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 is very clear. You've been saved by grace through faith alone, not of yourselves. It's not of works. The thief on the cross, nobody plunged his cross underneath water to get saved. But, but, it's still so intricately tied to salvation that everyone who has the opportunity to be baptized, who is a true believer, they will be baptized. They're going to seek it out. It's gonna be their first step of obedience and faith. And remember what baptism is. It's a public proclamation. I believe in Jesus Christ. We get into that water. It's an identification that I've been crucified with Christ. By the way, this is why we immerse. Not, not the least of which is that the Greek word for baptize is baptizo which means to immerse, to plunge, to dunk. Why do we dunk people? Because we enter in that water, I've been crucified with Christ. When we are put under the water, it's a picture that I've been buried with Christ. And we come out of that water, it's a picture of the resurrection with Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a bold public proclamation that what happened to Jesus, I identify with that. I wear the jersey. I associate my name with Jesus. And what you think of Jesus, you're welcome to think of me as well. Only in America do we kind of see baptism as kind of an optional thing. It's sort of like extra credit for the Christian. You know what I'm saying? If I want a few extra points with God, I want to feel like I'm, I'm even better with him, that God likes me more, I'm going to be baptized. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. The Bible doesn't see it as optional for a believer. It's a command. All of you be baptized. It's a public proclamation. You say, well, I'm a little scared to be baptized. It's okay to feel scared as long as you still walk obediently and get baptized. But when we refuse to associate ourselves with Jesus publicly, the Bible sees that as tantamount to not having faith at all. Just like it was in Moses' day. You put your blood on the door, you're gonna have a private faith that manifests itself publicly or else your private faith doesn't mean anything at all. We identify ourselves with Jesus publicly, whether it's baptism or otherwise, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Private faith must manifest itself publicly. You know, in India, they really understand this. Back in the late 90s, I was preaching evangelistic crusades in India. And what I discovered is that India, in addition to having 330 million gods, when you preach Jesus, most Indians are like, oh yeah, I'll take Jesus in. I mean, because it's just 330 million and one gods now that I'm worshiping. That's okay, sure. Let's add them into my giant pantheon of gods. I'm okay with that. An Indian who simply prays to receive Christ is actually not received as a true believer in the Indian church until he is baptized. The reason is, is because that public proclamation is also an identification with Jesus, and at the same time, it's a forsaking of all those other gods I used to follow. I no longer follow Brahman, no longer follow Shiva or Vishnu. I no longer follow uh, Islam. I follow Jesus and I follow Jesus alone. Only then will an Indian refer to you as being a true believer. Their, their mind was, if your private faith is not willing to manifest itself publicly through baptism, then you're not a true believer and we won't receive you as such. I don't think that's far off from where the Bible's at. A true believer will want to manifest their belief publicly. Like Paul said, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When you understand the beauty of the gospel message, you're like, not only am I not ashamed of that, I'm proud of that message, and I want everybody to know that message around me. When you don't care, friends, can we really truly say we understand what the gospel message is proclaiming? Moses put the blood on the door. It was an announcement to the rest of Egypt, I don't care that you hate me, but I'm gonna follow the Lord. How public is our faith? Are you willing to associate your name with Jesus? Are you willing to wear the jersey? No matter how bad it is for Christians, are you willing to be public? You are, if you have genuine private faith. Let's close. Father, we thank you today that you have given us life through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this Passover event, which is a shadow and picture of what we currently enjoy. And as we go to take the Lord's Supper this morning, God, we're reminded that this Lord's Supper is also a Passover meal. And that it has tremendous significance for us that the blood of Christ causes you to pass over us in judgment. And just as with the Egyptians and the Hebrews that day, if you had blood on the outside of your door, nobody is evaluating the worthiness of those inside. They just look for the blood. And in that same way, God, today, you offer us salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, and it has nothing to do with the worthiness of myself. It has everything to do with whether or not I'm willing to have the blood applied to the doorposts of my heart and life. God, I pray if there's any here who is not sure that they are born again, Lord, that they would stick around, that they would not go to lunch, they would not go home, they would not sleep until they settle it with you, that they are truly born again. God, help them to seek someone out today to pray with them, to help them understand that they can have the blood of Christ applied to their life. And as we're about to enjoy this Lord's Supper together, God, help us to be mindful of the reason Jesus died in the first place. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.